If you have your Bibles today, you might want to turn over to that gospel passage in Matthew 5, and uh, we'll get there in a little bit. Verse 27. Let's pray, though, before we begin, because we're going to need the Lord's help to hear the voice of the shepherd today. He is still the great shepherd of the sheep, and his sheep know his voice. And we need to hear his voice as we ponder scriptures like we've heard today, that we hear a right. And so let's ask the Lord that we hear a right. The seemingly hardest, most seemingly impossible scriptures that we can read. God is good. He wants to untwist the way we hear. Our hearts are a bit twisted sometimes. Sometimes is an understatement. But I pray that we would hear in an untwisted way today by the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him, Lord, come. Uh, Your redeeming work as second Adam is to untwist everything that's been twisted up in the universe and in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, uh, we thank you that you're, yeah, you're redeeming the cosmos, but you're also redeeming the center of our hearts as well. And you're speaking right to our hearts today as the good shepherd. And I pray that, oh, that we might hear your voice today. We thank you for that help, Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We're going to jump back into our series that we've been in and out of this summer called Fully Human, Fully Alive. We've been going through some material called Theology of the Body by JP2, affectionately called JB2, it's Pope John Paul II. Basically, we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be human? And JP2 takes us back to the words of Jesus uh, in Matthew 19. This is where we started way back. And he says, in addressing the Pharisees about the issue of adultery, which this passage is covering today, uh, and divorce as well, he says it's uh, not so from the beginning. In order to understand where I'm coming from, Jesus says we've got to go back to the beginning and work through original design. We're all too familiar with sinful designs uh, and the way that we are feel twisted and alienated and uh, weak and tempted and all of these things that we are struggling with because we're in a battle, we're in a war. Uh, The serpent has not stopped speaking. And so we must listen to the voice of the Lord in the midst of the many voices that are speaking to us, mimicking the voice of the Lord. Satan comes as an angel of light seeking to pull us away and distort his image. He can t- that's his agenda, is distort his image and likeness that is being renewed and restored within us. And so we're contending for his image within us. We're picking up where we left off in Genesis 3 uh, last time. And, and between Genesis 2 and 3, there's a, there's a boundary marker here. Because Genesis 2 ends with man and woman were together and they were naked and they were unashamed. They were in complete harmony. And then something happens in Genesis 3, which we've been looking at the last couple of sermons on this. And so in chapter 2, man and woman, created in the image and likeness of God, enjoyed each other with unbroken communion, naked and without shame. As man and woman gazed upon the physical body of the other, they recognized each other as a complimentary gift. No competition, no conflict, no evil intent, no lust, really. Just pure love from the Father. Man and woman found their gender identity, we saw, 
uh, in light of the other. Adam is alone with the animals. He doesn't identify as a male at this point, right? We've gone through this. You need, if, you, if you want to look more at this, look at my blog notes. But in the Hebrew, the word male is not used until he sees this new creation that God is bringing forth. God brought the woman to, to Adam, to the man, and he realized in the sexual difference that was taking place there, a sign and a symbol of something far greater, and he realized that this was woman, this was female, and he was male. And so this is where gender identity begins, at the sight of each other, as the gift of God brings them together. It's powerful material, and there's powerful implications of all this, and I think that you can draw many of those. They saw inscribed within their own bodies in their sexual difference, the sacramental sign of eternal union with God. Now, I'm not making this up. This is the way Paul is reading in Ephesians 5, the whole nature of Christ in his church. He takes the marriage relationship as a sign and a symbol of our ultimate destiny in Jesus Christ. The Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve, we shall call them, and it ends with a marriage which we can call Christ in his church, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this is highly symbolic language to communicate things that are just, will blow our minds. Our minds are going to be completely blown when this is happening. He shall come again in glory. I mean, that will just blow us away right there. If you can just contemplate in glory, uh, I want to be in it. And the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place and we will be perfectly united again in a sense, the way man and woman were perfectly united before Genesis 3. They saw inscribed within their own bodies in their sexual difference the sacramental sign of eternal union with God. Their design pointed to their destiny. But when they entered into dialogue with the deceiver, man and woman stray towards an independent path Stung with confusion and mistrust now towards God, their creator, they sever their communion with God and each other. Where pure, self-giving love once reigned, their hearts were filled now with fear and with shame. That's the boundary marker right there. Naked and without shame, naked and with fear and shame. And as the fig leaves were placed on their genitals, this is where the fig leaves went, okay? Highly significant, you guys. We see the serpent's agenda. In a sense, he's saying, destroy the visible sacramental sign of eternal union. He hates it. He's against it. And he hates people with bodies. He doesn't have a body. He didn't appear in the garden with a body. The snake is a mere image of an invisible being who had already rebelled and fallen to earth. Revelation 12. And so really the fall is just a repetition of what had already occurred in heaven, in, in the realm of the spirit, in the unseen real, where angels and archangels and God the Holy Trinity were dwelling in perfect unity. This group of angelic unseen forces were, were hurled down to the earth. And here we have Satan himself speaking invisibly 
really, inside, inside the woman and the man. This is an internal dialogue going on, I believe. And they're making disastrous decisions. Destroy the visible sacramental sign of eternal union. Because God is an eternal communion of self-giving love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Bible begins with a wedding, I said, and it ends with a wedding. Christ's first miracle was performed at a wedding. Christ is illustrating that not only the couple had run out of wine, but he's saying that the whole world has run out of wine. And he's saying, I'm here to restore the wine. I'm here to bring the wine back, the wine of my love, the wine of my spirit. And it's gonna happen by blood and water falling to the ground in the midst of the cross, the ultimate giving of oneself. This is the ultimate example of self-giving love. This is what God is like, self-giving love. This is my body, which is given for you. That's why the body matters. Because of the incarnation, Christianity is the most materialistic religion in the world, really. I'm not talking about consumerism now. I mean, we turn that, that beautiful thing of materiality and consumerism. Yeah, we've twisted that too, you see. But the body of Christ given to us as a sign and the symbol of what is to come in the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Christ, the second Adam, comes to restore the purity. We say this a lot. He comes to restore the purity of our origins. That was the purpose of the cross and the resurrection. This sign of union with Christ in the church, the great mystery of Ephesians 5, stands for those called to marriage, but it also stands for those who are called to remain single. It's a sign and a symbol pointing beyond marriage, human marriage. It's a sign and a symbol pointing for everyone's ultimate destiny, union with God. And those who have grace and have been called to remain single are bypassing the sacrament. They're already living in the good of the destiny, that union with God. Because if you look like, you know, I, I'm on Facebook with some nuns that I know, and, and it'll say married on Facebook because they're married to Christ. They're already there in a sense. They're already enacting what we're all headed towards, you see. That's the monastic tradition. Now, not all, not all of us have grace to live in that, but many do. And there's a place for that in, in God's church, you see. And it's a good thing, because that is the ultimate. Marriage is not the ultimate. That marriage to Christ is the ultimate. We're headed towards the ultimate. Marriage is a, a beautiful sign and symbol of the ultimate, in a sense. Okay. That brings us now to, that's just a little background that gets us caught up to Matthew 5 and what Christ is doing with the law here. And I just pulled out his comments on adultery, but he's commenting on several of the Ten Commandments when he says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. This is the new Moses speaking to us, you see. This is the new lawgiver. He, because he's the, he's the one who fulfills all of it for us. Christ radically alters the way we should think about the Old Testament law, specifically the Ten Commandments. 
He calls us to look beyond the exterior, example, adultery, physical adultery, to contemplate the interior, lustful intent in this case, the intention of looking with eyes of lust. The law could only regulate actions, but the gospel can transform hearts, he's saying. The new covenant claims to write the law within our hearts. Christ didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That's Matthew 5, 17. And so Jesus, the second Adam, in living out the full requirements of the law and the prophets, offers his grace to us to live beyond the rules. He calls us to be pure in heart. Calls us to be pure in heart. Anything I know of this, it's a process. It's a decision. It's a journey. Purity of heart is a journey that he's taking us on. We're learning what that means in the midst of an impure world and in the midst of impurities in our own lives. This is an internal struggle that he's going after now. He's going after this is because this is what was destroyed when our first parents disobeyed and went their own way. Their hearts, all of a sudden, that were inspired and full of the breath of God that he breathed inside them, suddenly expired. And they found themselves eventually dead. They were to live forever. But death, through sin, enters the world. And we can see the effects of death all around us. We can see the effects of death in our culture. Jesus is saying, I will be the one to overcome death. Where death once reigned, now in Jesus Christ, life will reign. And so that image of the tree of life is a sense Christ himself. For the healing of the nations, it says in the book of Revelation, the tree of life. Yeah, I love it. I love those images. It's all about the issues of life and death. Choose this day what you will follow. And so Jesus, the second Adam, in living out the full requirements of the law and the prophets, offers his grace to us to live beyond legalistic rules. He calls us to be pure in heart, to live from the center of our redeemed lives in Christ, and to realign ourselves with our original design to have holy desire, holy desire. Desire is the issue here. And even the book of Proverbs, the writer in Proverbs in Proverbs 37.4, he's got the key to this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that's on a lot of refrigerators, right? That's a nice promise. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you don't delight yourselves in the Lord, then the desires of our hearts, you don't want the fulfillment of those. So with this in mind, he addresses the sixth commandment about adultery. He calls us to transformation where the fall began, within our thoughts, within our imaginations, within our interior selves, where spiritual death once reigned in that encounter with the serpent, where we expired and God's spirit left and death came in. Christ is saying that the core of the problem here 
is where adultery begins. The lustful look, a way of seeing that objectifies the other, uses the other for one's own fulfillment of pleasure and for one's own ends. Lust is a disordered counterfeit of really the love of God. Lust is eros without agape. And there's so many forms of lust, you guys. It's not just sexual lust. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. He's speaking about, even in this passage, it's how lust enters. And it's not just talking about guys, right? Christ is addressing guys here. But as you read the statistics of what's happening in the world of pornography, both men and women are getting taken up with this condition, this disordered passion. And it becomes really an addiction. It becomes a physical addiction with everything that's going on as the eyes are opened and, and everything is secreted in your body, you become addicted. And it's very, very difficult to break. And so, you know, it, we, we, can't, we, we have to realize this is not just out there but it's within God's church too. We all are struggling with the same things that are happening in the world, right? We all are struggling. We need to be a place where we can talk about these things. We need to be a place where we can uh, offer healing and restoration, confession, and hope. <laughs> you know, just so much hope is needed for people who are stuck. There may be somebody here today that's stuck in this. And you see, this is in the unseen part of our lives that we won't share. And we want to be a place where you can actually do that in the right circumstances and in the right context. And it's a multifaceted condition whereby God's pure love and pure desire for communion with God has been twisted and distorted. Lust, if you could untwist it and you could get the distortions away and you can actually get the crinkles out of what we do with one another. It would show that we're seeking something that is beyond what we can achieve. But it's really that heaven is in our hearts, eternity is in our hearts. And we're looking for something that we can never find because we're looking for it through disordered passions. And Jesus is saying that the way to deal with this is not through the law, but through the heart being changed, through the heart being transformed. Because the devil really has no clay, he really can't create anything, he can only twist and distort what has already been created. I was thinking about the sexual revolution, which, gosh, I, I felt like I was raised right in the middle of it myself. And uh, I was... I, I've been completely affected by the sexual revolution in my teenage years. Before I, knew the, before I knew the Lord, I was addicted to pornography. Now, in those days, we didn't have the internet. We just had magazines. When I was 15, I had pictures hidden in my bedroom. I had a bathroom right, right in my bedroom where it had a sliding door. And uh, I was so, 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 you know, I was just thinking like, my mother will never see this, you know? And so I would close the door and, and just gaze upon the pornography, you know? That's a scar that's 
been healed in Jesus, but it's in the memory bank, and it can, and it, it can wreak havoc on us, you see. I feel like I have to go here first to give you permission to go there as well. But there's so many folks in our, in our congregation that could actually take up where I am leaving off here and walk us through if you're struggling with pornography or if you're struggling with uh, gender identity issues or any of those things. There's people in our congregation that have a lot of training, actually, and we're going to train more people that can help. As I was thinking back about the sexual revolution, I came across an interview because I heard about this interview and I wanted to find it, and I found it on the internet, and, it was a, and it's an interview with Hugh Hefner, sort of the godfather of pornography. This is so insightful because he says, in your home life, this is the question, in your home life at the time was a conventional American family? And he says, I think so, except that, you know, they were typically Midwestern Methodist folks with a lot of repression. There was not a lot of hugging and kissing. And so I escaped early on, as did my younger brother, into these fantasies fueled, by and large, from movies. Wow, that is a description of detachment disorder if I've ever heard one. Emotional detachment. Being raised as a child who is rarely hugged. I mean, he's, he's, this is an adult saying that I wasn't hugged or I wasn't kissed. I didn't get affection from my parents. He's in touch with something here. He's in touch with the core issue of his addiction. And so what exactly is the Playboy philosophy, they ask? I spent about three years writing on it. By and large, simply stated, it is a response to Puritan repression. Here we go. Body bad, spirit good. That's nasty, that's vulgar. You should be ashamed of yourself. All of that shaming about even our bodies. Puritan repression, a suggestion that life should be a celebration and one should pursue one's own dreams. That's where he's at. That life should be a Eucharist. It should be a celebration, Hugh Hefner is saying. I agree, it should be a Eucharist. Life should be a Eucharist, a thanksgiving of turning everything back to God. Unless you're blind and you can't do that. And one should pursue one's own dreams. That's different than pleasures. I think he probably means dreams, i.e. pleasures. But there's some truth there. And of course, a lot of the philosophy also had to do with rejecting the notion of sexual repression. I would make a strong case for the sexual revolution. But indeed, when I was writing the philosophy in 1962 through 66, it became a reality. It became a reality. It says that you're criticized by feminists for turning the female body into a commodity, into an object. And he says, oh, I think that's misguided. I think it's a reflection of a, of a Puritan element that exists in most things that are American. Wow. And then lastly, he says, even I'm descended from Puritans. William Bradford, a Massachusetts Bay Colony governor, and I'm a 10th generation descendant of William Bradford. Repression, reaction, turning all of that energy, all of that negative energy, all of that lack of affection, he rechannels that and creates an empire. But at the core of everyone that goes to pornography is that longing. 
is that longing really, they're not in touch with it and they may not, they may even deny this upon hearing it, but there's a longing for God. There's a longing for God's affection that they can never reach and they look for it in all kinds of avenues and it's sung in all of our songs, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places and stuff like that, right? And everybody has a hungry heart. Everybody, I have a hungry heart. Do you have a hungry heart? Our hearts are hungry, you see. Our hearts are really hungry. And we need to address that hunger. And the church has the gospel to address that hunger. We're too caught up many times in the cultural wars where we're out there pointing the finger at the very thing that we could say, oh no, you're looking for something far greater. And affirm, affirm what they're looking for. And here it is. Now they may laugh, they may not, they may not see it, can you see what I'm talking about today? This urge. You see, who put the urge there? Even the sexual urge. Where'd that come from? It came from the Lord. It's good. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, Adam said. That's a love song in Hebrew. That's the first song in the Bible. First song in the Bible is a love song. And then the enemy comes and distorts and twists what God has created as good. And then the church says, okay, we'll just throw that in the trash. Now, Carol Voltiwa, who later became Pope John Paul II, says if you want to talk about the sexual revolution, let's do it. But we're going to have to get beyond the exterior. Because if you stop at the exterior, that's where the distortion is. And that's what you're going to see. He started writing Theology of the Body and he started going back to Genesis and he ended up in the late 60s looking at the sexual revolution all over the world. He ended up in the late 60s with an 880 page book on male and female. And I tell you what, it's going to be a time bomb when it goes off. When we unpack what he saw, it's going to be a time bomb, for the church at least. For the church. Because there's so much confusion right now in the church about what it means to be human. We've got a lot of work to do our thinking has to go through the filter of this grace and we have to see what people are really, really searching for and reach out and be the love of Christ to folks who are deprived of affection, completely reacting. And yet, this guy is in touch with why I wasn't hugged. It's important, man, to show affection in your homes because if we don't show affection in our homes, we're going to seek it somewhere else. We need affection, we need love, we need expressed love, we need hugs, we need kisses. That's all good. But all of these have boundaries around them and even the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss, see. There's affection in the body of Christ. We have to look and see who's on the list in our neighborhoods and everything. And is this person coming in going to be, you know, does he have ulterior motives or does she have ulterior motives? I mean, you know, we've just got this consciousness that we have to be aware of, of predators and things like that. And so because this has become so twisted, it's hard for the church to be an affectionate place because we're all uptight about it. So may the Lord help us in these days. We really have something that's generating here that, because everybody that comes here says, you know, that's a loving congregation, man. I just feel so much love. And I just want to say, yeah, let's do it all the more. And that's beyond hugging and all of that. The love of God 
It's just like Jason and Elise this week. Yesterday, they, they took meals up to a woman who is homebound right now. That's a member of our congregation. They took a meal to her. They served her communion. This is what I'm talking about. And many of you have done this. I just popped up in my head because it happened yesterday. And so repression is not the way to actually deal with these things in our lives. And even Hugh Hefner knows that. And so this affection thing and this detachment thing, we're just going to have to learn how to address these orders, these longings in our hearts. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we may see with eyes of love, eyes of compassion and not eyes of lust. When we do see with eyes of lust, lustful intent, we bring that to you. We offer that to you because you're the one restoring us. You're restoring our hearts and you're writing your truth again and your grace again right in our hearts. Lord, thank you so much for where you're taking us. We want to be a good gift to one another and we want to be a good gift to our culture, Lord. For those that you would bring to us with disordered desires, unwanted disordered desires, that we may identify, that we may love, that we may show grace and truth to. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.